0: The Graphic Possibilities Podcast is the official podcast of the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop at Michigan State University. This is a graduate research workshop in the Department of English that engages with comics through two interrelated branches, critical inquiry and engaged pedagogy, led by Professor Julian Chambliss and graduate coordinators Justin Weigard and Nicole Huff. This season, we will be speaking with comics educators, makers, and scholars from around Michigan State University in a monthly podcast series. Given our distance this fall, we wanted to bring the conversation right to you, bridging the gap in space through the digital medium. In this episode, we are joined by Carlos K Hill, who spoke with the MSU community in a Zoom webinar about his recent comic, The Murder of Emmett Till, A Graphic History. Carlos spoke with us about the life and legacy of Emmett about bearing witness to and doing deep justice work to narratives of racial violence, the absolute necessity of community-engaged scholarship, and enhancing the pedagogical opportunities to graphic histories with archival, supplementary, and educational materials. Since this episode is part of our webinar series we're doing this year, we're going to preserve the conversation a little more than normal. We give brief intros to graphic possibilities, then Julian gives a wonderful introduction to Carlos, and then we jump right into our interview. As a result, this episode is a little longer than our typical ones, but I promise that it's worth every minute of your time. So please enjoy our conversation with Carlos Cahill.
1: Carlos, thank you for joining us. Um, This is for the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop, which is the One of the research workshops sponsored by the Department of English is the one on comics because I'm in charge and the two bright young faces that you see before you are the smarter engines that run the graphic possibilities research workshop. My graduate colleagues, Nicole and Justin, I'll let them introduce themselves in a moment. This year, we have a couple of goals in particular. Um, our concerns around race and representation, which has always been very important to us in relation to the the, the workshop. Um, we're also very concerned as our department as a whole is with anti-racist pedagogy or critical race questions around teaching in the classroom. And of course, because we see comics as a space to, to accomplish a lot of goals related to that, we've been very very dedicated to trying to think through a series of things this semester that we, you know, speakers that would be able to allow us to talk about that. And you, your name was at the top of my list and the bosses agreed with me. And so uh, we were happy. I'm happy to have invited you to the,
2: the to the Thank podcast,
1: you. right? Um, typically it is just a podcast this year. We also made the change of switching to a webinar format to give us an audience. And, you know, at the end of this sort of somewhat extended period, if there are questions from attendees uh, beyond the questions that we have, we will open, we will we will be monitoring the Q and A and doing that and allowing those people to participate. So um, I want to say hello to our attendees because we do have to um and i really appreciate that these are these are um uh, friends of the podcast by default because you showed up then right <laughs> <laughs> but uh we're gonna get right into it after introductions by nicole and justin so the goal you go first introducing yourself of course <laughs>
2: Hi, I'm Nicole. Um, I'm a second year PhD student at the English department here. My area of focus is in like Afrofuturism, and I'm really interested in looking at representations of Black women in horror, including like just in pop culture generally. So um, comics kind of really falls in there for me. Uh,
0: I'm Justin Weigart. I'm a six year PhD candidate in Department of English, Uh, I work in comics, video games, and digital humanities and and children's comics. And in particular, um, I've really been deeply invested in exploring uh, narratives of race and representation in children's comics, um, which is why I'm so thrilled to have you here talking with us because of the the comic that you you recently created with uh, David Dodson. So thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for that.
1: And for those attendees, and we are getting more people showing up, I will say, uh, even though we sent out a little bit of a blurb about you, um, Dr. Carlos Gay-Hill is an associate professor and chair of the Carlo Luper Department of African and African-American Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Oklahoma. You are a well-known and respected community gay scholar who deals with the history of lynching and racial Bynes and the legacies for the Black experience. And I want to say straight up that I know Carlos from um, him having wrote, written some back matter for a comic I was editing the back matter for called On the Stump. And his was one of the, one of the great contributions to that project. So if you haven't, picked up that graphic, that collection, that trade paperback, I do I do say pick it up because of the great information there. And we're here to talk to Carlos about the recent graphic history that he completed, um, The Murder of Emmett Till, a graphic history, which is part of the Oxford University uh, graphic history collection, their series. And so this is a great opportunity for us to sort of uh, learn about uh, this project, which was of course, One of a series of projects that recently have delved into the question of race and representation, and so I'm going to turn it over to Justin to ask the first question.
0: Thank you. Um, And so, Carlos, um, in your own words, could you tell us a little bit about the the comic that we have in front of us, the Murder of Emmett Till, a graphic history, and also maybe tell us a little bit about how it came to be, or even just how you got involved with that project, um, kind of. I know that it sort of fits into your work, so curious to hear your hear about it from your own perspective.
3: Absolutely, Justin, uh, and thanks uh, again uh, for inviting me uh, to share what I know about, the little that I know about race and comics, um, about visual storytelling. Uh, I, I would submit at the beginning, at the outset, <laughs> That you guys are the experts. Um, and, and, and this is really gonna be a, a conversation where we are are sharing, uh, you know, not you know receiving the, the gospel, as it were, uh, from me. So, you know, I'm I'm definitely excited to to be in dialogue with you. Um, you know, the murder of Emmett Till, a graphic history. Um, is a book about the most well-known victim of lynching slash racial violence in American history, Emmett Till. Uh, And Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy uh, from Chicago who had family in Money, Mississippi or in the Mississippi Delta. And in the summer of uh, 1955, in August of 1955, Emmett Till went on what his mother believed would be a two-week trip uh, to the Mississippi Delta where she herself grew up and in that two week uh, that two week vacation or trip Emmett Till for the first time would get to spend time with his rel- relatives without his mother and in doing so he would be able to co- truly connect with his family members uh, who still re- some of his family members who still resided in the Mississippi Delta and so uh, Emmett Till, like many other children of his time, you know, who, whose families had left the South fleeing racial violence, would find themselves returning to the South to reconnect with their ancestral homeland. And so the Till story shouldn't be a story that we are talking about. He should have been a young man who was able to go and visit relatives and come back uh, without any harm done to him but unfortunately for him until uh, he was murdered by two white men for quote unquote whistling at a white woman and the the whistling at Carolyn Bryant um, sparked initially a search but ultimately uh, a visit to Till's grandparents or excuse me his um, Uh, you know, to Moe's right, uh, a relative, great uncle of Till, and they kidnapped Till and brutally murdered him and tried to cover it up uh, by throwing his body, um, weighting his body with a gin fan, a 75 pound gin fan, weighting his body down with that and throwing it in the Tallahatchie River and hoping that his body would never resurface. Um, and to their chagrin, it did come, you know, literally come to light, come to the surface. And that the story of the Till murder told not just through newspapers, but through imagery um, is what sparked the civil rights movement. And so for the people who saw, for the, for the Black youth and black adults, uh, as well as white adults uh, and white youth who saw the image of Emmett Till uh, in lying, body lying in casket, um, face bludgeoned by uh, two two white men who sought revenge for a quote unquote whistle, uh, an untoward whistle at a white woman his image, right, became the image that sparked tremendous protests, outrage, but but I would say at its core transformed a generation, so much so that the 1950s the, the generation, people who were coming of age, right, um, as well as, you know, veteran activists were changed by what they saw, right, they were changed by Seeing the image of Emmett Hill lying in casket, um, his mother draped over him in tears, um, like that transformed a generation's commitment uh, to safeguarding Black lives, uh, especially Black children's lives from racial violence. And so that impetus, you know, you know, you know, taking Till's, the the, the imagery of Till's murder, but expanding that to try to understand how Till would have engaged and moved through the world. The challenge of thinking about that is what really propelled me um, to write um, the graphic history. Um, You know, I wanted to, instead of tell the story of Till with text, I wanted to do it with imagery as his mother had sought to do with sharing one of the most heart-wrenching and horrific photographs, lynching photographs, if you will, um, in our nation's history. She was generous enough and giving enough of herself, was willing to sacrifice to a certain degree so that other children, didn't have, and other mothers didn't have to go through what she had to. And so, with that same kind of impetus, I wanted to, you know, use the visual medium to try to tell a powerful story that might spark change, social justice, even around Till's case today. And so, comics for me became a way, right, or the graphic medium became a way for me to try to tell what was, all, was already a really powerful story, but to tell it in a visual medium to a n- new generation of young people uh, and perhaps even activists, veteran activists who are looking for um, you know, perhaps some inspiration or, or try to take some inspiration from, from Till's story. So I appreciate that, that question, Justin, and I could go much deeper, but... Um, But I just wanted to share with you that part of it.
2: Thank you so much. Um, You were talking, you know, more about like a little bit about community engagement. And across your career, you've also dedicated your work to community engagement through things like teacher preparation, um, as well as critically studying historical narratives of lynching, racial violence, and their legacies in the black experience. So I think there's a very strong through line between your monographs beyond the rope in the 1921 Tulsa race massacre and the murder of Emmett Till. But I'd also love to hear your perspective. So how does this graphic history um, fit into your overall work and trajectory?
3: Yeah, I mean, thank you for for speaking that into uh, into being. Um, I'm certainly if I'm anything. I I try to be community engaged. I try, and what I I mean by community engaged scholar, historian, is I try to put at the center of my work, whatever research I'm doing, try to connect it um, and not even connect it, put at the center of it, the community, Uh, community struggles, community visions for what this history means uh, in the present. Um, And so, you know, the Emmett Till book, uh, came along, or or, the, or at least the idea of it came along, as the FBI was um, after the re- FBI reopened the case into Emmett Till that had been a that had been lying dormant for nearly 50 years. Um, the FBI in 2006 reopened the case because there was um, and rightly so an argument that there were still people alive who had participated in the Till case. And if those people um, actually played a role, had a hand in either the murder or covering up the murder, those people should be held accountable. They should be at minimum brought to trial. And so in the early 2000s, this was brewing. By 2015, um, when the, the investigation had been completed, and an attempt to get justice for Till and Till family had kind of faltered. Um, I kind of you know, thought with the FBI's release of those records, it was a moment for us to sort of reassess um, what happened in that case. Um, why, did, why hasn't Till to this day, he or his family gained justice for what had happened? And so it got me to thinking about you know 50 years or actually 60 years after the fact, what did we know new about the Till case that we didn't know before? And so what came out of the book, or maybe the book shed some greater light on it, is that there were many more individuals involved in the Till case than just um, J. W. Milam. And 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 run excuse me not run Milam, um, but uh, the Milam brothers. Um, there was actually a much broader conspiracy uh, afoot that involved, uh, unfortunately, involved uh, uh, some black uh, some black people, and so trying to ferret out what actually happened. Um, in, in, in the murder of Emmett Till became kind of the goal of this book. At the same time, um, I didn't want the, the, the search for telling a new story or even a different story that we had received across time and history to sort of take precedent. The real goal for me, and what and in some ways keeps me up at night is the extent to which the, the graphic history helps us to understand Emmett Till, helps us to center him in the telling of this story. And at the end of the day, helps us to understand his agency in this story. And so those were the things that really really drove me in the telling of this particular uh, story is how could we center Emmett Till? How could we show his agency? how could we show who he was in life, not just who he became in death? And and, and whether or not that's accomplished with the book is what kind of keeps me up at night because uh, in dedicating it to Till, it was about doing that work. Um, But I would just step back and say, you know, the through line for me, and I'm I'm glad you used that word, um, the through line for me in my work um, and how Till connects with it and whether it's The Race Mask or the first book, Beyond the Rope, or the, the books that I'm currently creating another graphic history uh, on, it's about telling the stories of America. My work um, as a scholar, as a community engaged scholar, is to tell the story, stories of victims of racial violence. And oftentimes, these are stories that the victims could not tell themselves, their families could not tell themselves. And so I see myself as lending my voice, lending my witness just telling those stories, stories that often um, are not told, often stories that people do not want to tell. Um, And so You know, my work is to tell those stories, to bear witness to those stories and not just to tell those stories, to get activated around those stories, to do the deep justice work connected to those stories. Um, That's what I do. Um, And that gives me tremendous gratification, fulfillment, um, because, you know, in one way or the other, um, I am, you know, trying to speak uh, those individuals truths into the world, even though there's been many decades um, since those individuals uh, oftentimes are living, and so, and so I hope that answers your question. Uh, but that's kind of what 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 drives me and what drove the Till book.
2: Uh,
1: thank thank you so much for that answer. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this project is part of the Oxford University graphic history series. And so it's not just simply a graphic novel, it's actually yeah. a, a, a book with a lot of supplemental material, historical context, yeah. essay, photographs, documents, um, records, court transcripts. Um, and, you know, as a historian myself, and, and you were a historian, I recognize always the importance of the archive. And I guess I wanna ask you, you know, how important I think you sort of said one reason why it was important. There's a way I think to give him and Till more more voice in this in this process or make it clearer around what happened. But when you think about those artifacts and you think about the goal that you have for the project, and you think about actually, you know, the impact, how do you see those artifacts supplementing your ultimate goal, you know, how do you hope that they're utilized in terms of like, you know, achieving some of the outcomes that you've imagined for this project?
3: Yeah, um, you know, the, the artifacts or the supplemental material at the back of the book was really about enhancing the educational opportunity that the, that the graphic history uh, creates. Um, And so I'll just step back just a little bit, but I'll certainly try to answer your question as best I can. Um, You know, part of what, why Oxford has a graphic history series is they are trying to um, deal with the fact that in the 21st century, we live in a visual culture. We live in a world saturated with visual narratives. And for a particular generation of student, they only know, Uh, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. And if you want to engage them, you need educational materials that are a part of that milieu. And so, you know, they've seen with the graphic history series, tremendous sales volume, particularly for the the earlier versions of, excuse me, the earlier graphic histories um, that would sell, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 in a print run. Um, and so there's they they begin to understand after Abina how powerful, um, but also how engaging this visual medium uh, is for telling historical stories, for telling stories that we that you know um, in the classroom. And so I think the the graphic history series was born um, because of that that recognition. They for many for for a few years they kind of resisted calling it a series, but ultimately when when they have 8 or 9 books they're like well this is a series we need to call it a series and market it that way but that's kind of where it, where it I, it it became increasingly clear that for this for for the 20 21st century students the visual storytelling medium is a medium that they're engaged and so rather than fighting it embrace it and offer up educational materials that, um, that can speak to that, that, that visual learner and the visual storytelling that they're accustomed to. But, but, but with that, um, you know, the, the story of Emmett Till is one that's, as I mentioned at the outset, um, he's probably the best known Lynch victim in American history. Um, I can't think of another Lynch victim that has as many books written about him, articles written about, poems written about, um, and even to this day, news stories written about uh, them. I can't think of any other person than Emmett Till that occupies that space. And because we know Emmett Till, most individuals who know Emmett Till know him through the photograph of his you know, bludgeoned face. Um, You know, and and his mother, again, draped over his casket mourning the son that she's lost. Because most of us know him in a visual meaning, it actually became appropriate to tell his story in a visual medium um, because of the ways in which we know him. And so for me, it was very important not to exploit it was important for me not to uh, cheapen, uh, you know, his story with the visual, you know, through the gra- you know, through creating a graphic history or graphic novel. It was really about enhancing uh, what we already know. And so because that was the case, really, you know, from start to finish, trying to center Emmett Till's voice. And so in the graphic history, the first chapter is really devoted to telling the story of how he arrived to, to the Delta and the whistling incident. Uh, and so the, the whole, in that whole chapter, we get to see who Till was. So often when we talk about him, we start with the photograph. We don't start who he was in life. And so it was really important for me in that first chapter to really focus on n- not just how he got there, but to show people who he was this prankster, this, this person who had a zest for life, the person who sort of drew attention to him, uh, to himself, someone who was always the life of the party, um, someone who had gr- great generosity. Um, and, and someone who uh, didn't like to see people treated unfairly, didn't like to see injustice occur. And there's a couple of scenes that kind of gesture at that in that first um in that first chapter. So for me, capturing Teal's agency in the graphic history, but also in the in the, um, in the supplemental materials, so because the supplemental materials are really about the stories that we told about Till, who he was in life. And so there again, I'm, I'm trying to center him right in the telling of this, I, I, what I wanted to avoid more than anything. Is that Till became kind of a, an accessory in this story, or an object in this story, something that was referred to but not um, directly confronted? And so, to the extent that you know, the, in the first chapter, is kind of devoted to getting to know him, and even after in chapter into chapter two and chapter three, the focus is still on on him, uh, but of course the events overtake it, and it becomes about Uh, you know, the trial, it becomes about the post-trial, it becomes about uh, the quest for justice to the present. Um, But nonetheless, it was really about capturing his agency. And for me, and I'll just say this, um, you know, as a child um, who read comic books, X-Men, Superman, Superman, Batman, image comics, I became a comic book kind of connoisseur In the in the early nineteen or late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, when 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 a group of artists and writers left Marvel Comics to create Image Comics, that was to me like the best time in comics because you had so much uh, happening. But what attracted me, you know, in my youth to comics was the agency of the characters. Right, there was no one balled up everyone was empowered using their powers, whatever powers they had to make a difference in the world, to change the world, to transform the world, either for good or for evil. But there was agencies at the center for me of comics. And so I wouldn't have, if, if, if I would have deviated from that, that would have been, you know, sort of inauthentic because that's how why I came to comics. And certainly that's the reason for telling the story of Emmett Till anew putting him at the center versus treating him as has happened as kind of an object in the story, not the subject and agent of the story
0: and i'm I'm so glad to hear you say that, and one of the um, undercurrents of this conversation so far has been you really critically like intentionally trying to um recenter the narrative around Emmett's life and also reintroduce um, his narrative to, uh, as you said, a, you know, 21st century readers and and students, uh, folks who might not know about his life. Um, For me, um, A Wreath for Emmett Till by uh, Marilyn Nelson was was kind of that like picture book that that did that for me when I was uh, coming up. But I'm also struck by what, what feels like this book kind of feels like an extension of yourself as a 21st century scholar, in a way, uh, working outside the traditional monograph in this graphic history, right? Particularly in collaborating with an artist, David Dodson. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of insight into what it was like for you uh, working with David, working with, um, you know, a, a comics artist in this way, and what it was like to see Emmett's narrative visualized in comics throughout the process, kind of, you know, revisualizing history as it were?
3: Yeah, I would say um, before 2015, or excuse me, 2014, when I sort of signed a contract with with Oxford, I had never ever considered, um, you know, doing something like this as a possibility it only came as a result of a conversation with my editor at the time, um, Brian Wheel, uh, who, you know, saw in Abena, uh, which is the first graphic history that Oxford produced, he saw in Abena sort of a series. And, you know, when he talked to me, there were no other graphic histories on in, the, in their roster. And his hope was that mine might be the second or third one, but you know, as a historian, it often takes more time than not to create a book. And so mine actually, you know, was like maybe the seventh or the eighth book in the series. So four or five years passed between, but, you know, the, the, the goal was to sort of try to, again, um, you know, his challenge to me was how would you tell the story of Till kind of differently in a graphic medium. And, you know, I was at the time very concerned, as 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 you will be <laughs> once your careers get started, getting tenure. And would and this count toward my tenure process? And that was kind of in my ear, in my head. And I had certain colleagues tell me, uh, say, say things about that. Um, raising concerns about the tenure ability uh, or getting full professor with this book. But that kind of, you know, I push that to the background because the prospect of me having the opportunity to create a comic, something that I have a deep passion for, even though I don't purchase comics like I used to, um, you know, and keep a collection like I used to, The challenge of trying to tell the story of Till anew graphically um, was such a challenge that I just couldn't. I couldn't let it. I I, I had to engage it, and so it was really that: how can I tell this story new and differently in the graphic medium? And so for me, because I'm not an artist, I had to rely on David. Dave. Dave Dodson. I had to do as. I had to it had to be crisp in my mind, crisply in my mind so that I could translate that to him so I could tell him how it needed to be rendered. And so I needed to understand this history much more deeply, perhaps, uh, than if I were writing just a monograph, because I was going to have to tell him what the 19, what 1950s Mississippi looked like, what it felt like, what it sounded like. And so it took I had to go into another gear to sort of tell this story uh, because of the graphic medium. And so that the experience of having to think through the kind of words people would have used, the kind of scenery that would have been present, the kind of clothing people would have wore, the music people would have listened to, the way the cars looked, um, the kind of cultural and political milieu of the time, like bringing that all together on the page, a vision for that, a clear vision for that, was a challenge that I just, I salivated at because of my my interest, deep interest in comics, but also because it would force me to be a better storyteller. It would force me to actually create an arc, a story arc. And the, the good thing about, you know, writing, you know you know, writing a graphic history, um, I had so much material to work with. I mean, there's great novels on Emmett Till that I've studied and, 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 and taught that I was able to lean on um, there. And, and in fact, one of them was entitled uh, by Louis Nordan, Wolf Whistle. Uh, and so I found myself you know, going back to Wolf Whistle and imagining the surreal landscapes that he created to get myself in a place where I could think differently about who Till was and what I wanted to communicate. And so for me, the the challenge was trying to communicate effectively to Dave what needs to be rendered. And, you know, and, and not only just communicating um, what needed to be rendered, but give him the space to, to, to render it according to his talents, his visions. And so not the hard part was communicating it. But then, not trying to, not being as, um, you know, not seeing it as solely mine, allowing him to create and imagine as well. That was the the hard part of it, um, because typically, as a historian, and, and Julian will know this, you're writing uh, a, a, a you're writing a monologue. Excuse me, you're writing a, a, a scholarly monologue um, where it's just you as the author communicating. To an audience, an invisible audience out there, you're not actually collaborating with someone on creating the the text or the chapters, and so this was truly at, at every stage and step, it was collaborative, um, and 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 uh, you know giving up some of that power and control that we normally have over the manuscripts that we create or monographs that we create. I said monologues earlier, <laughs> that's where my mind is. Um, that's, that was a challenge. So, um, so yeah, that, that would, that would be, that was my experience of working with day who is a wonderful artist. And, and, and even now we're, we're conspiring to create, um, maybe a a new graphic history. So, um, but yeah, I hope that answers your question.
2: Yes. Thank you so much. Um, and you've been talking a lot about, um, how important it is to use visuals to essentially give agency to um, these folks who have experienced racial violence. Um, And so I'm wondering, what do you think that um, your graphic history, the murder of Emmett Till has to teach us um, or like specifically our student readers um, about the current moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to pin that down. Um, I've, I've answered um, questions similar to the one that you asked before. Um, and and I, I think I'll say something different than what I've, I've said before. I mean, I, I think um, for me, uh, I wanted, you know, the, 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 the change for me was about around centering Emmett Till. Right. I think that is a really, really important thing to do. Right. Not treat treat America's victims of racial violence as objects, but to treat them as subjects and in treating them as subjects, understand the complexity of their lives well before and the value of their lives well before they were taken away from us. And so in that way, um, because. Lynch victims never were afforded um, a kind of proper trial uh, and, and a kind of proper justice seeking, that justice work still should happen. We still should honor them. We should still tell their stories. That's why I'm so proud of Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative, the ways in which uh, the Peace and Justice Memorial has created sacred space for telling the stories of America's victims of racial violence, starting with slavery all the way to the present. That justice work still is important. Just because the case is 60 years old, doesn't mean the justice work connected to it um, is not important today. And so for me, because I deeply feel Till uh, has become an object in his own story the justice work that I'm doing that students are, become, our students are a part of because they are engaging with it and asking critical questions around it, is centering him, not the Milam's, right? Um, not um, the, the, the lynching or, or the violence, not the photograph of Till, um, but Till himself, right? To me, that is deeply important. Um And so for me, that's connected to the justice work. Not just, you know, you know, uh, per- perhaps uh, putting in jail or putting in prison individuals who conspire to either cover up or participated in. Um, it's not just about providing reparations to the family. I think it's also the justice work is also about how we tell the story. And so for me, centering him becomes really important, but, what, but I think the other part of this question is, to what effect? Why does this matter? Um, I think there's a way in which um, the victims of racial violence past and present just have become expendable, right? It's almost as if we are, a, as a culture, we are awash in stories, not just of racial violence, but violence in general. And as a culture, right? That's a wash in violence. I mean, there's this astounding statistics um, that in in October and November of last year, um, excuse me, March and April of this year, but also October and November of last year, where for 50 straight days in America, there was a mass shooting And the ways in which that was not a story tells us everything that we need to know about our present relationship to violence and past racial violence. There's a deep, deep, deep indifference to violence and specifically racial violence in a way that the Emmett Till case, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope unsettles people unsettling people to understand how a 14-year-old boy 60 years ago, 60-plus years ago, could be killed for no reason, and this country has not found a way to provide even a modicum of justice for that family, tells us everything that we need to know about the Black Lives Matter movement and why that movement, right? is trying to get us to understand some basic truths about this country, right? Emmett Till is at the center of, or should be at the center of our conversations about Black Lives Matter. Because until we can find the courage and the decency to, 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 to render justice for Emmett Till, I don't think we have, I don't think anybody else has a hope, right? And so his story is crucial to us confronting this history authentically. And so um, for, me, for me, who will be teaching about Emmett Till uh, this semester, not teaching my book, but teaching Emmett Till, these are the tones <laughs> that I hit. Like, if you wanna understand Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, if, you know, if, if you wanna understand Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, you need to understand first Emmett Till, and if you can, if you can, um, if you can understand Emmett Till, um, and the ways in which he became a rallying cry for a generation. I mean, the 1950s, uh, particularly the young folk created or who who were coming of age in the 1950s, think of themselves as the Emmett Till generation, just like the you know individuals today see themselves as the Black Lives Matter generation, right? There's real synergy here, but I think we can understand how persistent and even intractable race and violence has been uh, and the ways in which we, have, we are indifferent to the suffering of Black people and, and, and indifferent to actually confronting it. We can understand that through Till. And so that's my message to students. If you wanna understand Black Lives Matter, let's start with Emmett Till.
0: Thank you. And I'm also um, incredibly thrilled that you are so mindful of educators and and pedagogues. One of the sort of outreaches of our uh, research workshop here is critical uh, pedagogy through graphic narratives. It's our podcast and and the webinar today is really aimed at comics educators and makers who look to bring these graphic texts into the classroom. Uh, Like, uh, myself, I'm going to be teaching this book later this week to, to my students. And so um, I'm really curious if you have any insights or advice to educators who want to bring this, this text into the classroom, like whether you think it would fit well in a, a high school setting, if it's a little bit more aimed at, at college classrooms. And I, And I, I also kind of ask this because I know that you work with a lot of educators in the community too. So I'm curious what, you know, if you could, they're kind of like the middle ground audience for this I guess you
2: know
3: yeah I don't know um in terms of you know certainly when when I was pitching the book and when the book is entering you know production and we're talking about how the book gets marketed um we're thinking about college students we're thinking about high school students we're thinking about young adults in general um, as the primary market for this book. And I think, you know, I, I'm happy to see, um, you know, you, um, you know, uh, assigning the book in your class and there's some others who've assigned the book in their class. I'm, I'm, I'm tickled, I'm, I'm grateful that this book has found a home in, in some classrooms. Um, you know, for me, it was a difficult question about audience because I made up my mind at the outset that, and this is this is this is related to not cheapening what occurred, even though it was going to be in a college classroom, potentially high school, middle school classrooms, maybe even uh, elementary. Um, what I wasn't what I wasn't willing to do is to change the content because of those different audiences, to tell a different story. I really wanted to tell an unvarnished story of the white supremacy, the white racism, the white prejudice, uh, and the white indifference that led to Till's murder, the cover-up, and then the exoneration of, uh, of Roy Milam and J.W. Milam. And that meant me using, you know, the racist language of the day. That meant me invoking lynching very directly. That meant me even using racial epithets um, in the book because I did not want to, I did not want to give individuals a false sense of how this occurred and why it occurred. And so the 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 culture of segregation, uh, which is a character in the, in the graphic telling, had to be front and center. And I had to portray it in an unvarnished way. And I wasn't willing to compromise that because of the responsibility that I felt to telling Teal's story, not just with him at the center, but um, capturing the true dynamics that brought it, um, that, 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 that created it. Um, I would have been doing an injustice to students to not use the racially inflammatory language of the Mississippi Delta, which I am from, right? And so it it was not just about Till, I'm also from the Delta and I have lived there and experienced this culture. And so I had to also be true to what I've seen and felt living in the Mississippi, Arkansas Delta, And so for for those reasons, I, you know, I wanted it to perhaps to to stretch it to be a book that could be read even uh, in in middle school and maybe sixth, fifth graders, but I wasn't willing to change the content to do so um, because of my desire to tell Till's story authentically. The other part of it is, is that in choosing to tell perhaps an unvarnished truth where we put the violence and the racism at the center and also one in which you are using or at least referencing racial epithets it's important to do that stuff responsibly and so at the end of the book there's sort of a and I have the book in front of me here there is just a very short Uh, section that's designed to sort of give educators some tools, some resources for how to incorporate the book into the classroom. Um, Because if I'm going to say, I'm going to tell this in an unvarnished fashion, I'm going to use words that are inflammatory, um, that, that can create inflammatory responses or traumatic triggering responses, I need to give Uh, the faculty or the educators, the tools to have a conversation about it, not just say, here, here you go, do the best you can, but actually give some guidance and some tools. And so, um, you know, for me, you know, uh, who teaches on the history of lynching and racial violence, because it's a Trump, it's a, it traumatizes students in learning about this history, it triggers students in, in memories and experiences that they've had. It's really important to go into that with eyes open, with tools, with resources, and, and also uh, just being very clear with the students, this is how this stuff is going to impact you, right, whether you're conscious of it or not. And so, you know, I bring Till into the classroom and other histories of racial violence into the classroom with great trepidation, um, but also with great care. Um, you know, Because I have learned how traumatizing these stories are, having studied this stuff for more than 20 years and written about it for more than 20 years, I'm still trying, wrestling with how this stuff has impacted me. Um, and so I can only imagine what it is like for a student to be in this class without any resources, tools, right, or the public picking this up without any resources or tools to deal with it. And so it became really important to, to to say at the end of this book, and I wish I would have put it at the front of the book now, that this is, a, this is hard history. And in dealing with hard history, we can't deal with it like telling stories of the 4th of July or, or something else. Like we really are dealing with trauma. And this stuff triggers trauma in the present. So, what is the our responsibility as educators to first of all be aware of that, and then navigate that in our classrooms? And so, and offering up a book like this that I knew would be, um, you know, potentially in high schools, in um, the ways in which, you know, you know, in our culture, we're just not prepared. To have these conversations at a high level, it became really important to offer up something um, in terms of guidance um, because of that responsibility. So um, does that answer your question?
0: Yes, very, very much so. And I, okay. I really appreciated the, the care that you took in, in including that, but also in the in the list of like in those, that supplemental material, you know, the list of resources for educators as well as like additional readings too, if you want to like mm. continue doing the work, right? Um, so I, yeah, that, that very much answered my question. I, I okay. um, as an educator and reader, I appreciate all the care that you put into this book. It's, it's tremendous.
3: Thank you.
2: Okay, another pedagogy related question. Um, Do you have any go-to lesson plans or exercises for reading comics that work particularly well in a classroom?
3: I don't um, have any, I don't think anything special (laughs) in terms of activities or or, or pedagogical tools but I will tell you one thing that I'm thinking about um, in in relationship to to my book, uh, something that I often say Um, when I'm talking about this book is I had to imagine how this book, let me say this differently, Um, you know, in, in, in a, in graphic storytelling, it's the images that do much of the work, right? You're telling a story with imagery, right? I would say 60 to 75% of graphic, Storytelling as the graphics themselves and words are there or should be there just to support it. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about but I haven't done anything with is challenging my students to just look at the visuals, forget the words and tell me if they, un- they tell me what interpretation they arrived at just by looking at the imagery. Not the words. What? What can? What could they uh, understand just from the graphics themselves? As a kind of an exercise, where they're trying to help me to understand the extent to which the visuals alone could tell the story. Um, because you know, for me, again. Um, what I what I'm after is, or was after, to a certain degree, is the the imagery of his story to move and to evoke, um, you know, feeling right in the audience, right, or in the reader. And so they were gonna be helping me to think about that um, through their responses, but also um, just as an as an intellectual exercise. What are you, what is being gleaned from the imagery versus the imagery and the text? Um, And so that's something that I haven't put into practice. I can't give you anything more than that uh, because still for me, this is relatively new. The book came out. This is the first time I'm teaching this course since the book has been out. And so I just haven't put anything (laughs) into practice but that's something that I'm thinking about in terms of a pedagogical tool.
1: Uh, i I appreciate that answer, and I think it's it, it's important to recognize that we're all evolving our teaching when it comes to the graphic narratives. Um, we had a set, set of questions that we were working through. We were also, you know opening the floor to our attendees, which we do have some. And so I have a couple of questions from one of our um, attendees. First question is what do you see as the future of the graphic history with your works and works like March and Run? So, like when you think about what you've done with Mattel, this book, mm-hmm. and some of these other books around race and civil rights march being, of course, a trilogy that's very impactful.
3: Yeah. When you
1: think about those, what what do you see as the future?
3: Man, I am so excited. I am so 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 excited. Um, I I mentioned earlier that I'm a comic book fan, and you know I'm kind of upset that you know in the 1980s and the in the early nineteen nineties when I was getting into comics and and really the comics that I collected were Marvel and Image comics. I collected some DC because of Superman and I wanted to have or Batman in my collection, but it was really the Marvel universe um, that. I was engaging in and trying to understand and you know just an aside I was able to teach at OU of course race in the Marvel universe and I can talk about that if people want me to but i, I you know looking back I'm upset that I didn't get more exposure to comics like Black Panther um, didn't even know about Black Panther as a comic even though I bought Duh, i mean hundreds of comics as a kid I mean I had hundreds and hundreds of comics and not one of them was Black panther or, or typically of a, of a black black you know black sort of uh superhero and so you know I'm incredibly um hopeful excited but also inspired because of you know, the, the ways in which Black Panther as a comic has been revived, the ways in which Black uh, superheroes uh, are, 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 are getting spotlighted, not just on the page, but on the big screen. I'm really excited um, to be a part of that and, and also to continue to, to, to tell graphic stories. And so one of the things that I'm working on right now is a graphic history Uh, of the 1958 Oklahoma City uh, sit-in movement, which is a historic sit-in movement that transformed the civil rights movement. Not many people know that story. And so because of my experience of doing the Till book, because of my insights into how it can really engage um, students particularly college and high school students I've sort of you know, told the Looper family and the Clara Looper Legacy Committee that this is the way to, to inspire or to stimulate teaching and learning on, 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 on Clara Looper as well as the, the, uh, the Oklahoma City Civil Rights Movement. And so it's become a, a, a way, for me it's become this, this, this way to engage community Um, not just in the classroom, but outside of the classroom. So much so that it really has me thinking about community comics and community storyboarding as kind of a valuable exercise. So what what would it mean for me to sit around the table and listen to stories uh, from Claire Looper's family, and students that were mentored by her, what would it mean for me to hear their stories or engage or, 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 or see them as collaborators in telling this graphic story of the sit-in movement? Like what, what power, how powerful could that be? And so I really see the future, at least for my involvement, but I would love to see this for just graphic storytelling in general, the ways in which we can embrace Community comics or community storyboarding, right, in you know in in the telling of these particularly these real life stories like Emmett Till, um, and so or the 1958 sit-in movement. Um, I'm really interested in a multi-vocal approach to comics that is inclusive of say an author like myself or a writer like myself, but also a community. Um, working with me alongside me to tell their story and so for me as a community engaged scholar I'm I'm trying to figure out how I can make this graphic storytelling medium into a community engaged one and I will and I kind of see that as transgressive um not just progressive but transgressive and so you know because I hope to have a long career, I hope to do multiple uh, comic books or or, or graphic tellings of of real history um, and put the community at the center of doing that. And so that's my vision for my work. I hope it can become uh, something that inspires other people, um, you know, in this medium.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's a really, intriguing vision in part because I, I do think that that's one of the things that we see hints of um, sort of happening in the sense that there are just, at some level, it's the lesser known story right now that seems to be the the, the fuel for graphic narratives. But there's always this po- this possibility and this potential around, you know, filling in documentary record with comics by talking to people because of course, like the community does know and the community doesn't get the opportunity to tell and, and using comics as a way to do that. So that's really intriguing and, and I agree with you it's something that's really probably the future of some of this work. But, you know, Sinclair um, Portis is the person who's, who's asking these questions and Her second question actually is a follow-up, which I think is actually a really important question when you think about the history of comics in general, is how do you think that this affects the the betrayal of Black people in comics?
3: Yeah.
1: Right, and important question.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I and to be very honest, um, until I taught the course Race in the Marvel Universe, and until, which was only two years ago, two and a half years ago now, um, and certainly with the publication of this book um, just last year, I've been thinking more and more about this this topic. Um, and for me, um, you know, it was wanting to be thoughtful and very careful about race and comics and how it's, you know, at least how I was deploying it, you know, in my work and ultimately in the classroom. I really needed to and I really needed to actually teach about it um, and to have these conversations with students about it. I didn't what I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't think that I could sort of come up with great ideas just by myself. And so I actually collaborated with a film scholar um, in 2018, 20, I guess it was 2019, early 2019. Um, to do a course, Race in the Marvel Universe. And the goal was to ask the question what if we put race at the center of the Marvel Universe? Um, what would it reveal? What would it tell us about America? What would it tell us about the Marvel, you know, g- the genre of comics that it's created? And so we kind of used as a test case um, Black Panther, which is my, my, probably my favorite film of the last, you know, five or 10 years. Um, Thor, which is a film that most people would not necessarily connect with race or, or dis- discourses around race. But on closer inspection, it's all about white supremacy and colonialism, um, as well as Black Panther. You could make the same case. Um, and so what, what would it do for our students, was our thing, to reread or read differently, read the Marvel universe with race at the center. What with, you know, what new insights uh, about their choices, film choices, would they make, and wh- how would that inform how they understood, understand Marvel comics, and, and, and in relationship to that, um, how they would then navigate what they would watch and why they would watch it, and so you know that course helped me to think through. Um, you know the question that you you raised Julian um but I would say that I still um I'm still trying to grapple with just how important um you know race is to comics but we, and, and, and and you know from and we know from just the um you know I I heard statistics when we were when we were doing the course that you know, the Marvel franchise is the most profitable franchise in film history. Or excuse me, the, the um, Avenger franchise um, is the most profitable franchise in film history. Billions and billions and billions of dollars have been created. And do we ask the ways in which race informs that, right? And is a part of that. And, you know, why aren't we asking those questions? Um, and so it's, this is something that I began to, to question and ask, but at this point, um, you know, I'm still uh, trying to understand the enormity and the scope of this. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so that, that's kind of where I am.
1: Right, yeah, and I, I, I really, I, I, I'm there with you. I'm gonna, because I'm a comicky, comicy scholarly person. i want to like differentiate between um, your class being about the Marvel Cinematic Universe as opposed to a class. Oh, and actually, I'm
3: mm-hmm. sorry, it's the cinematic. But we were right. also trying to also understand it through the comics themselves. Comics, but right. but yes, it was focused yeah. on the cinematic. Yeah. But thank right. you. Right. And and
1: I and as someone who you know taught a similar class, I'm like whiteness, right? Like that's <laughs> a kind of framework for the entire superhero genre whole. Um so we'll talk about this later. <laughs> um, um, for sure, because I think of course that that's whiteness, securitization, and um a kind of post-911 take on globalism is at the core of so the Marvel universe for sure. Um, and and that's really always something in the back of a in the back of my mind when I look at it, even as I enjoy, you know, the the implications of um, the greater diversity that we see in, yeah. in the temporary Marvel films.
3: Yeah, I I think I th- and just to follow up with you, I think the the idea was um we don't arrive at oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this as well, we don't arrive to comics uh uh, in a way, so it's not the conversation that we have about race. Like we don't arrive to a com typically we don't arrive to a conversation about comics and talk about race. And so what does it mean to center race in a conversation about comics? So it's kind of the the point of the class, but in, in but in doing that work of centering it, it becomes clear, as you were mentioning, um, how central race is, uh, in in the Marvel universe or in the comic universe.
2: Right. We
3: just don't, we, we're, you know, there are these assumptions that are made. There are these assertions that get made about race that never get challenged that never get necessarily challenged. Um, they get taken for granted um, and, and sort of, the course was about, you know you know, shedding light on that and speaking back to that, the ways in which perhaps in comics, uh, we are always talking about race. We are talking about race by default, but never really in a direct way. Um, or at least in in, in you know, in, in certain uh, you know, Marvel, you know, uh comics, whether they're on screen or in, in or or in print. Um and so 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 that's what, you know, drove me in, in many ways to sort of, you know, end up teaching about um, you know, uh, comics in class.
1: Right, and, and yeah, it's a really complicated conversation that I think to have, right? Because, you know, ultimately race is at the, the heart of American comic books in particular. Um, it's just that whose race is the thing that's shifting around. <laughs> Right, so if it's Jewish Americans and their identity, the, the sort of marginalization associated with, um, that they're facing the early part of the 20th century, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's there, you just have to see it. And once you see it, you can't really not see it, mm-hmm. right. wow. <laughs> And some level, well, it becomes very important to a narrative structure. Um, uh, but um, we, I think we, we we run out of questions for, um, from our, our audience, and um, usually at the end of these these podcasts, we always want to give our our subject, our, our interviewee, a chance to talk about things that uh, they're reading and projects that are forthcoming. So, you know, uh, I'm right there with you as a comic book fan of the like early 90s, and and currently, so are there comic books that you're reading right now?
3: You know. Uh as a writer, it's gonna sound crazy, but when I'm deeply engaged in in writing projects, I'm writing more than I'm reading. And right now I'm writing more than I'm reading. Um, And so I, I, unfortunately I don't have anything in terms of comic books to report that I'm reading right now. But the last comic book that I read or comic books that I read are On the Stomp, the one that you invited me. Uh, to be a part of uh, a particular issue. That's probably the last uh, comic that I've read uh, seriously and, and, and really you know, thoughtfully. Um, and, and, and you're in a better place to talk about that one than me, but I certainly enjoy participating. But I would say what's on my mind right now and the things that I'm working on that's related to graphic storytelling um, is a, a book on Clara Looper, um, and the 1958 sit-in movement, um, sort of tentatively entitled it Freedoms Classroom. And the the goal is to help, you know, students understand, um, you know, how Clara Looper, who is the, you know, referred to as the mother of the Oklahoma Civil Rights Movement, who was you know, friends and, and, uh, and comrades with uh, the likes of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, and other civil rights notables. Uh, she, in her own right, was as important a leader, specifically in Oklahoma, as they were in Alabama um, and in, Chicago, uh, in New York. And so, um, you know, that's, what's, that's what I'm spending most of my time reading. I'm reading um, you know, reading and rereading her, her um, memoir of the movement, um, Behold the Walls. I'm um, reading, you know, just, you know, firsthand accounts of what occurred uh, in, a, in a way. So to get all that in my head. So when I begin to construct scenes, construct construct the storyline, I'm playing with all of that imagery and all of those stories. So it can just kind of come out in an organic way. And so I'm doing that, that heavy lifting right now. I'm just throwing myself into that uh, spending time with that so that I can get to a point, hopefully sometime in the spring or at the latest in the summer, where I can just, you know, I can just, uh, I'm not going back to text trying to understand what that is that really like it's all here. I'm just organically putting it on the page, drafting, redrafting, so that's what I'm kind. Of, that's what I'm kind of, you know, uh, I haven't read so much in terms of comics, but also uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, the things that are on my not just on my mind, but on my heart. Um, and what's on my heart is uh, Julius Jones. Uh, I don't know if any of you are, are familiar with Julius, but Julius is a 41 year old man who's been uh, in prison for 20 roughly 22 years for the murder of a white person in Oklahoma city in 1999. And if the state has its way, Julius Jones who's currently on death row will be put to death um, in November, uh, November 18th. And so there is a justice for Julius movement that began in 2019 After um, his story became sort of national news uh, because of a documentary, an ABC documentary about his case. And so since 2019, um, the Justice for Julius movement has slowly been creating awareness uh, and pushing the system to treat Julius fairly uh, as it hasn't done for 20 years. And so um, you know, Julius is a poet and, and, and a creative, um, and, you know, has, you know, become a poet in prison, um, and, 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 and has, you know, began and he's drew drawn, um, things for me and I've been able to sort of meet with him and see him. Um, but, you know, I, I mention him because, you know, he's, um, telling his story is very important to me and getting people activated uh, around his case is very important to me. And so I would um, you know, ask each of you and, and, and those who, who are on the call or on the, on the webinar to just type into Google Julius Jones and learn about his case. And if you feel so compelled by his case, uh, sign the petition, donate, um, send a letter uh, to the to the governor of Oklahoma, who truly holds in his hands a man's life. Uh, if he, um, you know, pardons Julius uh, or just commutes his his sentence, um, he will save, I believe, an innocent man's life. Uh, and so um, that's what's on my mind. That's what's on my heart. Sorry, I haven't. I don't have any... Really exciting comics uh, to share with you that um, you know that I've been reading reading lately.
1: No, no, um, you have more important things on your mind. That's that's okay. Um, okay. Thank you so much for the time and uh, for the insights and sharing your work and your concerns and and good luck with um, teaching this semester and uh with your with your future projects
3: absolutely and you as do the same it was such a great great meeting both of you nicole uh justin um and hopefully we can have another conversation after justin's course and we can talk about what went well what went wrong (laughs) hold me to hold me accountable for the things (laughs) i've said today and and we can have a good conversation
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that uh, we we would enjoy that. Actually, I'm yeah. sure it will go it will go well. But yes, we will be in touch and be in conversation for sure. There's okay. always more stuff um, related to comics and culture that we're concerned with, and and we have lots of different events. So keep us in mind, and we will be in touch.
3: Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good day.
1: Thank you so much to our attendees, And um have a nice rest of the day.